This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up, two authors who've written fascinating books. Later in the show, award-winning journalist Louisa Lim will join me to talk about her brilliant ode to the city she loves, Hong Kong. Her book is titled Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Plus, another example of a musical compilation to benefit the people of Ukraine. This time, you're going to hear music from Ukraine. First. My guest is Ron Francel. His book is titled Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer and the birth of FBI profiling. Ron, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Okay, I've got to start by telling you, I started reading your book when it arrived, and, I, and I'm going to be very honest with you. I did not put it down until I got to the very last page. It, <laughs> well, it, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you sure know how to write a compelling read. You really do. So let's start off by letting all my listeners know what this story is about, because quite honestly, and I think you say this in your book, not many people, including you, knew about this story until you sort of stumbled across it. Can you give my listeners just a very brief outline of what this book, Shadow Man, is about? Certainly. Um, you know, today there's hardly a primetime TV crime drama or mystery, movie mystery, or uh, even a crime book that doesn't feature profiling in some form. So it's easy to think that cops have always been intuitive about the bad guys. But in fact, it was less than 50 years ago that these two pioneering FBI agents came up with this idea that crime scene evidence could tell uh, investigators a lot about the behavior and the psychology of their perpetrator. So Shadow Man is about how these two guys conceived the first ever criminal profile in the early 1970s to help a, a frustrated agent who had no leads, no witnesses, no suspects in a couple of grim Montana murders. Uh, and uh, of course, in the end, they discover they've been unwittingly dealing with something bigger and darker than they ever imagined. But it starts with a crime that's fairly uh, ordinary. Yes, yes. Let me, let me just mention to you that I lived in the Pacific Northwest for many years. So Montana was a place that I would go to, 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 to visit and just tour around and enjoy. So I kind of know Montana quite well. And when I saw that Montana was the, what Manhattan, Montana was the locale for this story, I thought to myself, I wonder if I've ever been there. I wonder if I know Manhattan. Well, as it turns out, I hadn't. I hadn't been. I've been a lot of places, but Manhattan, Montana, I hadn't been to. But I did because <laughs> of your book. I Googled it. I, I looked it up. I, I Google mapped it and, and what, just wanted to see what it was like and just sort of get a feeling for it. That's what your book did for me. It made me sort of revisit my journeys to Montana and see if I could discover what Manhattan is like. So Manhattan, Montana is a tiny little town. 
and it's a kind of a sleepy little town as well. There's there's not not a lot goes on there, but all of a sudden there's a, a, a and it's quite a mystery. It's a mystery, and they didn't know. Nobody really knew how to solve this and what was going on. Can you pick it up a little bit from there? It, yes, uh, it was a family from Michigan that was on this grand western vacation, and and they they were stopping at all the roadside attractions on the way and they end up in this little campground in montana um they're they're having a great time and one night uh, four of the five kids jam into a tent to to spend the night uh, they're all lying there completely <laughs> bumped up against each other in the morning though uh, one of them wakes up and, and notices that the, the tent has been sliced in a sort of half moon shape and their little sister is gone. Uh, she's seven years old. Susie Yeager is her name. They, they, of course, mobilize very quickly to see if she's wandered off somehow. Uh, and they find she hasn't, they can't find her. Um, yes. uh, they call the sheriff's office. The sheriff's office shows up. They can't find her. Um, there's a mysterious trail through the dew on the grass, but that's the only evidence they have is this little trail, which is actually no evidence at all. Um, very soon, the FBI is called in to uh, join and actually lead the investigation because federal law required it. Uh, the largest manhunt in Manhattan or in Montana history uh, ensues, but they find nothing. You have literally more than a thousand people out there beating the bushes. Uh, they find nothing, there's nothing. So as the weeks and months pass, these FBI agents have no leads, no real uh, evidence, uh, no witnesses, and consequently, no suspects. Yes. And they're very frustrated. And this goes on for, for a year, doesn't it, before they really... Nearly a year, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, it, it, the, it, about seven or eight months after Susie Yeager's disappearance... Uh, another young woman, a 19-year-old waitress, there in Mon in Manhattan, um, goes missing. Yes. Uh, and and there's no real connection between the two in their minds at that time. Nobody's thinking these are related. It's just a little girl went missing last year, and now a teenage girl went missing this year. Yes. They uh, search for her and they find her car hidden in a barn in a remote abandoned ranch. Uh, and as they search closer, they start to find uh, just a lot of bone shards scattered all over this ranch. Uh, they collect them and send them off to the Smithsonian, who, which comes back and reports that indeed they're the bones of a young woman who would fit um, the description of a, you know, a late teens, early 20s woman. But they also find among those bone shards uh, evidence that there's uh, the remains of a little girl, yes. maybe five to nine years old. And suddenly 
the FBI is thinking that what they have might be the remains of Susie Yeager, as well as the remains of the older, the older girl. And they might have one killer instead of two separate crimes by different people. And then uh, FBI agent Pete Dunbar, he goes to Quantico and talks to a couple of gentlemen, FBI uh, profilers. They weren't called profilers then, but they were no. leaning in that direction of profiling. And, and they come up with the idea that they can maybe give an outline of who a suspect would be. And so those agents are Howard Tetton, Teton, Tetton, and... Teton. Yeah. Okay. And Pat Mullaney. And so Dunbar comes back to Manhattan with some ideas, but he's not convinced that this whole sort of hocus pocus profiling idea is really worth a dime. But they do draw up a list of possible suspects, but not really seriously. But one name on that list, as the investigation keeps going on, keeps popping up more and more. And that is David Meerhofer. And this is where it, the book just gets so incredibly fascinating because the more investigation that goes on, and then there's certain other things that happen, and we'll get to that in a moment, but Meerhofer's name just keeps coming up. But Agent Dunbar is like, no, this is not possible. This guy couldn't possibly have done these things. Can you talk about how that how that went about, how Dunbar just did not believe that Meyerhofer was, was the suspect. Well, certainly after that profile, that first profile uh, was in his hands, he, he could look at more people. Um, and they, they indeed had a, a considerably more people to look at. And one of them was this David Meyerhofer, who was kind of an odd guy, uh, an ex-Marine, but he was fairly articulate. He uh, spoke well. He had some knowledge of police work. He wanted to help. He'd never been in trouble. So every time his name came up, uh, Dunbar or some other a uh, law enforcement agent would go talk to him and come away saying, you know, this, he doesn't seem like a killer. Right. He, he's not right for this. And so Meyerhofer comes on the radar, then goes off the radar back on three, three or four different times. He takes two lie detector tests and a truth serum test, three, lie detecting tests and he passes them all with flying colors not not even a hint that he might be lying about something so for more than a year he's he's not he he's just this occasional name that pops up and then they dismiss him so uh that that becomes part of the the fascination for me yes and then or I think it is, on the anniversary of Susie Yeager's disappearance, something happens, which is absolutely astonishing. The Yeagers... So go, go ahead, please. Yeah. Uh, well, you're right. It is, it's astonishing because it's part of the profile. The yes. profilers had determined that they, that 
well, that hey, they had believed that this had become an intimate crime to whoever committed it mm. and that he would mark anniversaries. Now, again, remember, they have no database that tells them that. Yes. They're, they're deducing this. Um, so they, they tell Dunbar, they tell the agents involved that to, to be aware that something might happen on an anniversary of this. And indeed, it was the anniversary of Susie's disappearance that her mother gets a phone call in their Michigan home uh, from a man who identifies himself as being Susie's abductor. Uh, and by her questioning him, he reveals something that only the killer could know. So they know they've got uh, Susie's abductor and likely killer yes. on the phone. And that's where things start to warm up. Yes. And the other part of this, Ron, is the remarkable just steadfastness of the grieving, because she believes that her, her, her daughter is dead, although she got an just a little tiny bit of hope that she's still alive is yes, Marietta. Yes. Marietta is just this astonishing character in this true story. She then takes another phone call from, from the perpetrator, and then she has a face-to-face -face meeting with him. It's the way you've written this. It, it's just absolutely breathtaking. Talk to me about Marietta. Marietta to me is one of the heroes of this story. That, that steadfastness that you're talking about, the strength yeah. uh, while she's grieving, while she's afraid, uh, while she's sick at heart, um, she confronts this, this caller at first, uh, then later face to face with the suspect um, in a way that draws him out, that draws out reactions that, that are important to these pioneering profilers. They hear things in his voice. They hear things in his reactions that tend to make them believe that they've got the right guy. Even then, though, Agent Dunbar is not convinced. He's yes. pushing back against it, even as they tell him that he's probably got the right guy. Um, and so uh, Marietta, without her, I don't believe, I believe today we might be talking about an unsolved mystery in Montana, but she is the hero um, and she's the remarkable human element of this story that um, touched me. And I wanted to tell her story um, truthfully and genuinely, and uh, I hope we've done that. You did it very well, Ron. I think that, as you say, it's it's so moving just here. The story itself is is so gruesome. You don't realize it's going to get so horrible, but then then more evidence comes to light, and then some things. It comes of absolutely obvious that that David is is the killer. And that's where it starts to turn and it gets so strange. Let me just remind my listeners, if you just joined us, my guest is Ron Francel. His book is titled Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer and the birth 
of FBI profiling. So it gets to this point where body parts have been found in David Meyerhofer's refrigerator and freezer. Mm-hmm. This, this is just, I mean, it's just horrible to read. And even worse still is the dialogue that you give us, the full dialogue, be, the interview between uh, Meyerhofer, he has his attorney there, who I want to get to in a minute, and the county attorney, Tom Olson. Just the dialogue here is extraordinary, it's spine chilling. Just talk to me about that, Ron. Well, it, that. Uh, even up to his arrest, this, there was this chance that they didn't have the right guy. Yeah, uh, They had circumstantial evidence against him. They had this profile that pointed in his direction, but they didn't have any better evidence. In fact, he had passed lie detectors uh, and the truth serum test. So, so there was a good chance that he didn't have the right guy, or at least he could get off with a good lawyer. Uh, It's during a search of his uh, converted garage apartment that they come across uh, some grisly uh, evidence in his freezer. Uh, When his lawyer is called on the scene, um, he's sickened by this, partly because he believed in David. He yes. believed David had been harassed and persecuted wrongly. Uh, when he sees this ghastly evidence, he first pukes on the lawn. Yeah. Uh, then he goes to David and loses his mind uh, in anger um, and tells David, you, there's, there's no way we can overcome this evidence in your possession. Uh, you are a dead man walking. You're going to hang, which was Montana's method at the time. Uh, David responds by saying, could we get the death penalty taken off the table if I told them about other killings? Right. Yes. Um, after discussion with the county prosecutor, uh, an agreement is made that that if he confessed to two further murders that he claimed he could, uh, they would take the death penalty off the table. So then that uh, interview happens that you describe and it happened it starts in the wee hours of the morning less than 36 hours after david's been arrested and the whole point is to get him to describe not only his murders of the the waitress and of susie yeager but of these two new crimes that shocked them even existed they they really hadn't ever had those crimes on their radar. Yes. So uh, the, 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 the interrogation interview that happens is rendered in the book verbatim. I used transcripts from the courts um, and uh, ghastly, more ghastly confessions come out, but uh, we now have Um, a confessed killer of four people in this little uh, sparsely populated county in Montana. And it grows more shocking as we go. 
you know, even though this is a true story, I'm sort of almost, I'm almost reluctant wrong to give too much away, but I do want to pinpoint something that you write on page 272. You're talking about David Meinhocker's uh, your, your psycho psych psychology, I guess. You say, where did his rage come from? Was he ferociously confused about his sexuality? What about the Meyerhofer family's dynamic, if anything, created two extraordinarily bad seeds? And then you go, the question remains unanswered for almost 50 years. Was there anybody else involved? Did he have an accomplice? Because there's certain things that happen in the story that you wonder, how did he get from here to there so quickly? How did he transport a body and then disappear into the night? Mm -hmm. All these questions are just so incredibly important. But this is at the end, coming towards the end of the book. And it's just, it's just like, oh, my goodness gracious. Talk to me about that, about that question of could, have there, could there have been a, an, another person involved? And about David, about David's mental state. Well, um... As I described, that that interview happened less than 36 hours after he was arrested. Um, before 48 hours, um, we end up in a situation that basically says we'll never know. Yes. And we still don't know. The question arises, where does this come from? Where does this rage come from? We do know that he was conflicted about his sexuality. He uh, is believed to have tended toward being gay, but in his small town in rural Montana in the early 1970s, um, there was no easy way to come out uh, and be treated uh, humanely again, he thought. Yes. Um, and I think that worked on him. Did that enrage him to the point of wanting to kill a seven-year-old girl and three other people? I don't know. I don't think so. There was no evidence in his family history uh, that there was exceptional abuse uh, of any kind. Um, the family is reasonably ordinary with the problems that uh, many families have. So where that comes from remains a question. Uh, we also know the family produced another serial crime uh, psycho, uh, uh, which raises the stakes. Where uh, This ordinary family that we don't know how they produced one yes. ends up producing two. Yes. Uh, there, there are more questions today uh, that are unanswered simply because of the events that transpired in 1974. Uh, the book describes that, and I don't necessarily want to give away that right, particular right, yeah. ending, yes, but yeah. uh, it's it befuddles me too. And it befuddles Mark Safrick, the who writes the afterword, the former profiler yeah. wrote mm -hmm. the afterword. It befuddles uh, an advisor, uh, a forensic psychologist who advised me on this, and uh, a friend who's a forensic psychologist. They they all um, they all avoid 
trying to analyze where it came from, but they all say there is almost no chance, zero chance, that David Meyerhofer didn't kill more. He may, he was certainly more prolific than we know. Than we know. And you say very succinctly towards the end of the book, you say, fact is, nobody was really looking any further. Uh, well, I don't want to say this really because what happens, but you say, <laughs> David, <laughs> David Meyerhofer remains a shadow. You know what I was going to say there, and I sense it. Yes, I do. Okay. So I want to get back to the profiling. So as you say in the book, today we speak of David Meyerhofer as a serial killer. But when Titten and Mulaney were working on the murders of Susan Yeager and Sandra Smorgan, the term serial killer was not yet part of the American lexicon. Now, that's these true. days, yeah, that's true. And now I was thinking about this, this, Ron. I was thinking about when I was living in Seattle in the, uh, in the 80s, Ted Bundy had been around for quite some time, and he ended up in Florida. And I remember the night that he was put to, into the electric chair. And I remember thinking to myself then and many times afterwards, not what a shame that he was dead so much as what a shame we couldn't have found out more from the man who did all these horrible, terrible, terrible murders. And the FBI had profiled Bundy. If I, am I right yes. in thinking that? Yes. Yeah. Um, but he was put to death. So again, he sort of died with still a lot of things not not talked about, not discovered. Correct? He did. And you think of the years yeah. we had with Bundy and the, the, the progress we'd made in profiling and the interviewing process and the databases. Um, we had less than 48 hours with David Meyerhofer. Right. Um, yes. And it was early in the process before we developed some of the science of profiling. So uh, that's what leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But the fact is, there are a lot of questions unanswered in all of these crimes, all serial killers and serial rapists. There, there will always be uh, some unanswered questions because in most cases, that that's their way of keeping control. Yes. A couple more questions for you, Ron. There's some really fascinating characters in the book. One that fascinated me is attorney Dazinger. Is I saying the name correctly? Dazinger? Dazinger, yes. Dazinger, mm -hmm. yeah. He's a very interesting fellow because he's a, a small-time country lawyer, but he's avidly sure that David Meyerhofer is is not the perpetrator, is not the, the suspect. But he's also, um, he's kind of the way you describe him, he's kind of just very slovenly, he drives a beat up car, and, but he's passionate about what he does. He's also very passionate about the death penalty. So that's something that he really, really doesn't want, even though he now realizes that Meyerhofer is guilty, he doesn't want him to die. Yeah, he's he believes uh, very strongly that David's been harassed and persecuted. He's strongly against the death penalty. Um, he's he's all in on David. It's not until you know things start to come to light in in, in evidence that 
he begins to see that he's all wrong. But even later, he represents David's family. He's um, he's just amazing in his dedication. Um, so uh, yeah. he's, he is a fascinating character. Ron Francel, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer and the birth of FBI profiling. Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you for making time. To learn all about the books and music we feature on Life Elsewhere, pop on over to lifeelsewhere.co. Still to come in the show, folk music from Ukraine to benefit the people of Ukraine. Next, Louisa Lim will talk to me about her exceptional book, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong, right after this. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. We would like to know what you think of our program. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Sign for what's been. Sign for Louisa Lim is my guest, and she has written a book that I thoroughly enjoyed, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Louisa, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, I am going to take a chance here um, because a lot of authors put a little notation at the beginning of their book, and it also sets up the sort of tone for me in some respects of where we're going to go. And you say <laughs> at the frontispiece in your book, and you say to all those who really love Hong Kong, now, I really like that because it sets everything up for me because clearly you love Hong Kong. And that's what that's one of the takeaways that I got from your book is that you love Hong Kong. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And let me just talk a little bit about that note as well. I yes. mean, the reason yeah. that I put that in was because after this, after the protest movement, this national security legislation passed, which is very draconian and very broad, and it became very difficult to protest in any way or to say anything slightly critical. So instead, people started going out with banners saying, I really love Hong Kong. And so that in itself is kind of a form of protest because it was the only acceptable thing to say. But it's also, you know, a sentiment that I really, you know, I wanted to celebrate. So it was definitely yes. for people who love Hong, really love Hong Kong. And it is, yes. it is a very sweary book. Cantonese is a very sweary language. And when I read the audio book, I did realize there was a lot of swearing in the first few pages. Yes, um, I mean, that's interesting because I wanted to get to that. I wanted to talk to you about the fact that I didn't real, realize, and I'm sure most people that are going to read the book don't realize that Cantonese does love to say the word half a lot. It really does. It's it's a you know it's a amazing language, really fun to speak because it's sort of super sweary, very emotional. I mean, it's quite casual but at the same time there are lots of rules in Cantonese but very hard because there's there's a lot of different tones. Now let's get into the book because one of the fascinating parts about the book for me is that you Louisa Lim you recount some of your own experiences and that's what makes this such 
I think, such a real story that you tell. You give us little stories about your life, about growing up in Hong Kong. I want to get to some of those different stories as we, as we go through this. But I, first of all, want to just pick on, and when I say pick on, I want to focus on the title. Indelible City, got that. Dispossession, and this is really important. And then defiance in Hong Kong. Those three words, indelible, disposition, and defiance, are so crucial. And I hope people take notice when they pick your book up how important those words are and how much you talk about both or all three of those words. Can you just fill in just a little bit on those three words? Yeah, so I was really interested in retelling Hong Kong history and in a way that really put Hong Kong people front and center of that. And one of the ways that I wanted to do that was through the prism of the King of Kowloon, who's this extraordinary character, um, a disabled, elderly trash collector who may or may not have been mad. Nobody can agree on that. Um, who believed that the, king, that the peninsula of Kowloon opposite Hong Kong had been stolen from his family when it was uh, given in perpetuity to the British in the 19th century. And he spent half a century writing all over Hong Kong on the walls, writing these in very bad calligraphy, you know, like a six-year-old's writing. He was writing about his dispossession, um, his family's claims to... Uh, to the land. And he became this real cultural hero, you know, rap singers sang songs to him, as did lounge singers, poets wrote odes to him. He was played cameos in films. He had all these art exhibitions. He became the territory's most valuable artist. And I think those obsessions that he had about land, about territory, about dispossession, about loss, and the way that he um, expressed them through his defiance, these were all themes that has actually, you know, have been very central to Hong Kong and to the protest movement that we've seen. Yes, I think we should point out, and as you point, as you say in the book, that the King of Kowloon was in our terms today like a Keith Haring or, or Banksy. I mean, that's the sort of the equivalent of the fame and the importance of the King of Kowloon. I'm so glad that you went straight into that and talked about it because he, he is an incredibly important part of your book. There's something I just want to point out to my readers and ask you about. This is right in the prologue and you say, as the years passed, this book grew harder to write. And as I'm reading the book, I kept remembering that line and I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, I wonder, how, I wonder where at what part you were really going, ooh, I'm having a hard time writing this because I'm really, gosh, there's so much to say. And I'm, I'm just curious to know what was really important to you that was hard. Is that back to front? I think it is. <laughs> uh, there were so many things that were hard about this book. I mean, to be honest, I slightly fought against writing a really personal book because I'm, I've had a training as a very traditional journalist. You know, I was a BBC correspondent and the whole kind of ethos of that was the stand back, the, you know, objective outside the story kind of, kind of view. And when I started writing it, you know, the parts that 
came really easily with with the personal parts. And my editor, Becky Salatan, kept pushing me. You know, she kept saying, these are the parts that are really talking to me. You really need to write more about it. And, uh, you know, that for me was a struggle. So that was my first struggle. Uh, You know, the second, or, you know, there were many things that were hard about it. Just even kind of making sense of these competing narratives of Hong Kong history, that too, I found very difficult because they were so far removed from each other. The British idea of Hong Kong's history and the Chinese idea of Hong Kong's history, and then Hong Kong's own kind of almost imaginary history, that that was hard. And then the really difficult thing came after the national security legislation was passed, it was imposed on Hong Kong in 2020, when I had to take out a lot of detail. I had to really worry about uh, who I was quoting and what they were saying, and whether there was any possibility that people... um, could be you could get in trouble because you know that that would be the last thing that I would want so you know there was a lot that originally had been in there that I ended up removing and to me that was a real struggle because my whole issue with Hong Kong history is that Hong Kong people have not had their voices heard so to take them out to remove Hong Kong voices and Hong Kong names really went against the grain, yet in many ways it was, I felt it was the only way that people could be protected. You you alert us to that right in the first page in the author's notes, and that, of course, caught my attention, and I was sort of bracing myself because of that. I, I want, now want to just before we go any further, is just talk about you and your heritage, because you say, and I just want to go to this here, In chapter three, Kowloon, you say we were variously called half-caste, Eurasians, mixed-blood children, and then you go on with all the different slang terms. Talk to me, Louisa, about that and about how somebody from mixed race is seen, not just in Hong Kong, but I mean specifically, I guess, but in, in the Chinese culture. Yes, so my father is Chinese and my mother's English. Mm. And uh, they moved to Hong Kong when I was five because they thought that it might be easier for them. You know, back in the UK, the even the postman asked my father if he was an Eskimo. And they really thought <laughs> somewhere like Hong Kong would be a place that would be welcoming. And then, you know, when they got there, I think they were taken aback to find that there were still all kinds of prejudices against mixed race people and particularly the kind of couple that they were. So it's much more normal to have uh, a Chinese woman married to an an a Caucasian man than, than the other way around. And they found that yes. they were sort of very much outcasts as well. And there was this moment when um, my mother and I were went to a tea shop when I was, you know, was a very small child, and we were just sitting at the table drinking tea. And there were these old Chinese women on the other side of the table, and they began throwing tea leaves at me, and I just couldn't understand it. Wow. I didn't know what was going on, and my mother made me leave. She was just like, no, we've got to go. We've got to go now. And later on, she said, no, we we had to go because they didn't want to see you. 
Yes. And they didn't want to see me because of my heritage. And this was very much the fate of mixed race people, of biracial people in Hong Kong. And when I went back and looked at the history of it, I was quite shocked to find that, you know, it was deemed so inappropriate in many ways to be mixed race, that mixed race people even kind of expunged themselves from history in the censuses. There was this ca- category of mixed race people and people didn't, you know, it disappeared because nobody wanted to admit to being mixed race. In many cases, they went one way or the other, but being mixed race was just seen as an unacceptable. And I mean, when I was a child, you know, it has got better in the years since. And I, I'm very grateful that I'm mixed race. I think that we've, I've been extraordinarily lucky to have, you know, to be able to have both these heritages. You quote uh, Joyce Simmons, born in 1918. And as you say, she puts it most devastatingly, Eurasians were too different and in a sense did not exist. That's shocking. It really is. It is shocking. And I think for me, most shocking of all was the way that Eurasians really didn't assert themselves. They, they, you know, they were willing to disappear themselves. And I found that really sad when I, when I discovered that. So, you know, in many ways I want to, I wanted to write about being Eurasian because I just think that we, People like me, we've been in a very privileged position and we're really lucky. Louisa Lim is my guest. Her book is Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. There is something about your book that I find poignant in a lot of respects because it is a personal story, but you are talking about a place that you love and you are giving us a history history lesson in a lot of respects because I think... For instance, somebody like myself that grew up in the UK was fascinated and still am fascinated by Hong Kong, but I really never knew the, the sort of the real history of Hong Kong. And one thing that I did in your book encouraged me to do was to look at a map, to Google map Hong Kong. And I just want to hear it from you, Louisa. It's such a small place, isn't it? It's a tiny place. I mean, I think it's something like seven miles from end to end at the most at the widest point. And yet Hong Kong has played such an important role. And I think an important role in in the Western imagination of Asia as well. But in in so many different different respects as a trading place, an international financial center, you know, this um, entrepot that it's been, it's been, you know, and the economic role that it's played, you know, Britain envisaged it as this great emporium of trade. And it really has been for so many years, despite its tiny size. What's the population these days? The population is about 7 million, but it's shrinking very fast. Ever since the national security legislation part was imposed on Hong Kong in 2020, And then recently, because Hong Kong has had this zero COVID policy that has been incredibly draconian, there's been this huge outflow. So since the end of December, 150,000 people have left Hong Kong. So we're seeing these new Hong Konger communities that are really springing up 
all over the place. I want to go back now, if you don't mind, to to one of your personal stories, because these are fascinating. There's one, this is in the chapter Hong Kong government, and you talk about when you were 17 years old and you and a friend were smuggled by two handsome British officers <laughs> into their apartment. Talk, talk to me about that, because not that I, I, I want to get into all the sort of nitty gritty, but it's just fascinating learning about about your personal stories. So, yeah, I, I was 17 years old and I was out nightclubbing with my friend and we met these two very handsome British officers. And actually they smuggled us into HMS Tamar, which is the, um, it was like the naval headquarters. It's this a very large building on the waterfront, which later became the center for the People's Liberation Army after Hong Kong returned to Chinese rule. And they smuggled us in there. And I just remember when we went in there, they took us up to the officer's mess right at the very top and they somehow magicked out of a fridge champagne and strawberries and we were looking down at all the ships in Hong Kong harbor and I just had this real sense of how removed their lives were from ordinary people how they were leading this sort of extraordinary existence which was you know so colonial hanging out in this officer's mess eating strawberries on Hong Kong and it was just a moment that I found really interesting and I just felt their lives were you know more similar to my grandfather who was a British soldier they were more similar to his life than they were to my life. I I love these personal stories I also like the 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 characters that you bring in to the book and one that I want to talk about and particularly because he worked for Apple Daily. Before we go any further, can you explain to people what Apple Daily was, which doesn't exist anymore? So Apple Daily was a newspaper, which was Hong Kong's most pro-democracy newspaper. And it was also its most popular newspaper. And it was shut down after the national security legislation was imposed. Um, it was sort of forced to shut because the funding, its accounts were frozen by the authorities. And you talk about, and I hope I've got his name right, Chip Sal, but also known as Tukit. Can you talk about him? Yes. Yeah, so Chip Sal is one of the best known columnists in Hong Kong. And he has written when he was working for the Apple Daily, he writes these columns that sort of, you know, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people were reading it every day. And it was... He's just, you know, a really acute observer of Hong Kong and what it means to be Cantonese. And I, I went to interview him and, you know, the way that he spoke about the language and the Hong Kong identity. And I think the way that he was so able to kind of take the best from the Eastern and Western intellectual traditions, you know, talk about Federico Fellini, the Italian filmmaker, and then in the next breath to talk about Nan Yue, the Southern Yue dynasties and Chinese yes. history. Yeah. Um, it really, you know, he's one of these people that I think embody the sort of breadth of intellectual inquiry that Hong Kongers have, that I think was in many ways lost to the British 
colonizers because they didn't really speak Cantonese. They never really made any effort to understand Hong Kong culture. Yes. Another character which fits into exactly this topic is MC Yan. Can you talk about him? So MC Yan was is one of Hong Kong's first rap stars. He's also one of its first um, graffiti artists. And he's this, he's now become a Tibetan Buddhist, but he's this extraordinary character. He went to art school in France in the 90s, and then he came back and started tagging on all the walls, and he became a very close friend of the King of Kowloon. Um, at the time, he had this pigtail down his back, and the King of Kowloon was convinced that he was a time traveler who'd returned from ancient China to visit him. But they used to go out tagging together. And what MCN wanted was to, um, to study the King of Kalu's tradecraft, to learn how he tagged without getting in trouble. Um, and it, he had this theory that the King of Kalu, you know, wasn't crazy, that he just pretended to be in order to do graffiti and not get arrested. But I, um, I spent some time with um, MC Yen and I just, you know, his, he, he makes these sort of enormous assertions, but there's always this sort of kernel of truth behind it. And when the protests broke out, he, his band, they were supposed to be retiring. It was supposed to be their big 20th anniversary show. And instead of retiring, what they did was they wrote a whole lot of new songs that probably they'll never be able to perform again. And there was this one, this which uh, 2019, which was this anthem that he set to this music. And he was borrowing on this really um, famous TV program, which was all about police corruption. And, you know, it's a really hard-hitting song about police brutality. And, yeah, I just, you know, there's, the, the, there's so many people like that in Hong Kong, these kind of amazing and brilliant <laughs> sort of quite eccentric artists and musicians um, that I, I met really because of my obsession with the King of Kowloon. And when I... Yes wanted to find out more about him and I tracked down all the people he knew and they were all kind of crazier and more eccentric and more artistic and more interesting than each yeah. other. But it was this sort of extraordinary kind of trail, an intellectual trail through Hong Kong's popular culture. And I just, you know, I just really got to the stage where I felt like the king was taking me on this journey yes. and I you yeah. know all I could do was just surrender and follow and go yeah. where it led me and then later on I realized that all the people that I'd met were the people who were already thinking and talking and creating art or music that was touching on these themes of sort of sovereignty and identity and dispossession and that you know I'd already met them because of this weird obsession that I had. You know, the fact that you bring the king into the book so many times is, I, I love it. I, I, I was wondering when I got to the end of the book, what would, what does Louisa Lim ask of the reader, the big takeaway? What would you like the reader to, to have as the, the, the main takeaway from your book? 
I think the, I mean, the main takeaway is to listen to those voices that are not heard, to look for those voices that are not heard, to maybe think a little bit more about the narratives that we're fed and not just Hong Kong's own history, but our own, you know, the history of other places. Because, you know, the strength of the British narrative and the Chinese narrative is so overpowering that they completely sort of um, drowned out that Hong Kong voice, and yet that Hong Kong voice is really important. Yes. I love the fact that you've got a picture of the King of Kowloon at the back of the book. I have been talking to Louisa Lim, the book, a fabulous read, it really is, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Louisa, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Over the last month or so, I've mentioned that almost every day I receive yet another marvellous compilation to benefit the people of Ukraine. So I was extremely pleased to receive the LP Elegy for Ukraine, a folkloric compilation. And it seems fitting that I should play a cut from this excellent album. Here then is, and I'm not going to distort the beautiful Ukrainian language, my musical instruments carved out of wood.
From the LP, Elegy for Ukraine, a folkloric compilation, we heard my musical instruments carved out of wood. Now they tell me all income from the sales of this compilation will be donated to institutions that help refugee victims of the war in Ukraine. Details about the music and books heard on Life Elsewhere are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. A big thank you to my guests and a very large round of applause to you for listening. Till next time, please be well, be safe, and as always, I urge you, be nice. Bye-bye. have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C-O. Mm-hmm.